Welcome to the Fireman's Trainers Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Beckman. Our podcast is part of the concealedcarry.com network, brought to you by Access Sites, the fastest sites in any light. Today, we'll be talking with Joe Eaton from Faster Saves Lives about their quest to educate school personnel to respond to active killers in their school. Before we jump into this week's podcast, quick reminder, there are only a couple weeks left before the Guardian Conference on September 17th to the 19th in Oklahoma City for an opportunity to take training from some of the best trainers in the nation, including some of our guests like Jeff Gonzalez, Spencer Keepers, Riley Bowman, Steve Moses, Haney Mahmood, Todd Fossey, Brian Eastridge, Brian McLaughlin, and Andrew Bronco. If you're worried about ammo, they have ammo for conference attendees. Go to guardianconference.com for more info. We bring this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at the FTA, the Firearms Trainers Association. Visit their website at ftaprotect.com to learn more about their instructor coverage they offer and their competitive pricing. Receive a special 10% off in your policy by entering promo code FTP10 at checkout. This episode is brought to you by NAG Tactical. As instructors, our students are always asking us what gear we use. I always tell them I use NAG Tactical. Do you know that NAG Tactical offers several designs, each with extreme comfort for all-day carry? The Revenant and Professional holsters have a patented tuckable design, adjustable cant, and secure twist release. My personal favorite is the KO-1. It is an all-kydex appendix holster that I can carry all day in comfort. All of NAG's holsters come with a two-week try guarantee and a lifetime warranty even on the clip. Remember to check out their Flex Mag Carrier also. It has a three-layer comfort backer and will accommodate several sizes of the magazines. Shop at natactical.com to find your next holster. That's the letter N, the number eight, tactical.com. Today we are joined by Joe Eaton from Faster Saves Lives. Welcome, Joe, and thanks for coming on the podcast to share your thoughts with our listeners. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Before we dive in to our topic for today, um, can you give a l- our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got connected with Faster Saves Lives? Sure. Uh, the Faster Saves Lives program is actually sponsored by the Buckeye Firearms Foundation. So been involved here in Ohio with Buckeye Firearms Association. The Political Action Committee was the first entity that we spun up. Uh, then we started in 2008 with the nonprofit Buckeye Firearms Foundation And of course, we have the General Buckeye Firearms Association. They all have to be separate because of tax and campaign finance laws and that type of stuff. And I got involved in FASTER. You know, we foundation had done a lot of work with uh, youth firearm safety training, running youth shoots. Uh, We've worked with the American Academy of Pediatrics on uh, letting pediatric doctors know how to discuss safe storage with their gun owning families. We've worked with... uh, Franklin County Loss, which is a suicide survivors uh, program to develop information and seminars specifically for gun owners, how to have those difficult questions with your gun owning friends that may be going through some issues because, uh, you know, we know time and time again, there's a two week period where things can be very dangerous and, you know, you have to know how to have those tough conversations. Faster Saves Lives came about after the murders at Sandy Hook Elementary School, and I thought I'd sit on the sideline until I went to the first class that we had in 2013. I met the teachers and the staff, and I saw their love and dedication for our kids, and uh, it's been no holds barred since then. We've uh, just finished our ninth year of it. We've trained over 
3,000 school staff from 260 different school districts across 18 states. And I'm uh, going to keep running this as long as we still have schools out there that want to take safety seriously. Well, that is, that is great. Eight years uh, that you've been doing Faster Saves Lives. And uh, I think one of the best things uh, because I, that I was very fortunate to be able to go through Faster Saves Lives this summer, and it was great to be invited from a media standpoint to go through it because one of the, one of the things that I think is uh, great in one sense is that the, your Faster Saves Lives graduates have uh, not engaged a shooter from that standpoint, but they've been able to go along and use their uh, medical training to, you know, attend to medical uh, problems, you know, in the, in the field on, I, I don't know all the situations, but at the same time, you think about it, we always talk about being prepared for that unexpected. And yes, we've got, we've got a firearm. Yes, we've got a, a first aid kit, but being able to go along and actually know that you've ha helped people save other people. That's, that's a great testament to the, the success of the course over the last uh, eight years. It certainly is. And, you know, in the general media and elsewhere, you know, the firearms get so much of the attention because that's what is sensationalized and what gets the, the mainstream media, their clicks and their views. But there's just so much more to the program. You know, the firearms have to be a part of it because you never want to solve a deadly force situation with something less than lethal. It just does not make sense. So you've got to give them every option. They may not always have to need, use every option, but they, if the staff want that ability. We owe it to them to give them a chance at going home to their families at the end of the night, just like every other day. And so, you know, a large part of it also, as you saw, is the general crisis and emergency type of management training, how to you know, move people from areas or, or yourself from an area of danger to an area of safety. Uh, the trauma medical is a large portion of it also. And these are all skills that, you know, they can take back with them and use in lots of situations. You'd mentioned the we've had several lives saved simply with the trauma medical training that we provided to our school staff. And actually, we have had one of our school staff members have to draw their firearm in the course of uh, his day. Uh, fortunately, the situation ended without shots being fired, and that's the best hope we can come up with because the young man uh, gets to get the help that he obviously needs. And, you know, the, the it was a school principal at the time uh, does not have to live with the fact that he had to use deadly force against a young man. Well, that's great. I think I went, went a little bit off track there in my excitement for Faster Saves Lives because the first thing I wanted to ask you to explain to our listeners, what is Faster Saves Lives? I mean, obviously, it's something got to do with schools because we've already talked about that. But I'll let you do your, uh, your elevator speech for all our listeners so they know what we're going to be talking about. Faster Saves Lives, it is a, uh, a violence response program that was designed for schools to prepare their staff to be able to respond to an active killer type of violence or that type of extreme violence. Uh, it is an acronym because everybody in the world loves acronyms and it stands for uh, Faculty and Administrator Safety Training and Emergency Response. Uh, you know, our tagline, uh, time is all that matters, is really boils it down. The the experts that we've worked with, and you can consider us blessed or not blessed here in Ohio, we have three nationally recognized experts on how to deal with these type of mass killing events and specifically in schools. And time and time again, 
They tell you the way that you save lives in these events is first, you have to stop the killing by having somebody there that has an effective means of stopping the violence as soon as possible. And then the second thing is you have to have somebody there with the tools and training to stop the dying afterwards to buy the victims that extra five or 10 minutes till the professionals can get there. So combining those two, uh, that's what we provide to, to schools, churches, businesses uh, here in the state of Ohio. And we actually uh, running classes in Colorado. We've done them in Indiana, Utah, and we're just now finalizing the schedule in Arizona for it looks like March of 2022. So it provides them with the ability to stop the killing as soon as possible and to then stop the dying as soon as possible so that we save as many lives as absolutely possible. So I'll, I'll go along and, and ask you one of the questions that might be on people's minds right now, but if the police can get there, you know, within three minutes to the front door, there's a school resource officer. Why, why would having armed teachers or armed staff, um, make a difference? Truthfully, it's simply mathematics. Uh, we've looked at all of these past events and what we find is in these active killer events, on average, every minute that you allow the violence to continue, you can expect to see five to seven additional wounded or dead. And, and that's on average. And we know from past events, it's always front loaded into the first couple of minutes because they generally wait till they have a larger group of defenseless people before they start committing the violence. Then after the first minute or two, they generally have to start seeking out more victims. So. Really, it's a math problem and the schools get to decide, you know, how many dead and injured are acceptable number to me. Um, you know, great example is Sandy Hook Elementary School. And, you know, you don't have to take mine or, or Rob's word for it. You know, your listeners can go look at the attorney general's report from the Sandy Hook uh, massacre. And there's a great timeline in there and it spells out exactly what will happen if a school or a church or a business, if their whole plan is to wait on outside help. It will never get any better than we saw at Sandy Hook Elementary School. And I don't think anybody is willing to say that 20 dead babies is an acceptable outcome. But it boils down to the math. If you look at the timelines, they know at Sandy Hook Elementary School, their doors locked automatically at 930 in the morning. They don't know exactly when the shooting started, but it was sometime after that because he had to come up and shoot his way through the glass in the front door. The next timeline that you've got is how long does it take somebody to dial 911? And again, on average, there's no way of knowing. It's generally two to four or five minutes because the people who are directly under the gun are not thinking about dialing 911. Self-preservation is the only focus that they have. People are not directly in the area. You know, we all hear the stories time and time again, how at Virginia Tech, they thought it was construction or how at the Waffle House down in Tennessee, the one victim there had said, well, I just saw a stack of plates they were stacking up. And I was thought for sure that was just the plates falling instead of gunfire. So, you know, even if you have two minutes till somebody dials 911, you already have five to, to 15 dead or injured at that point. Sandy Hook Elementary School, the dispatcher done an excellent job. 28 seconds from the time the call went in till she put the call out over the radio to get police moving toward the elementary school. And they actually had the first officer in the parking lot in under three minutes. 
and two more officers for a total of three officers sitting in the school parking lot within three minutes and 16 seconds from the time they were dispatched. There's a police department out there that tells you they're going to get there faster than that. They're flat out lying because that is lightning fast response time. That's the best that it gets. And we lost 20 babies that day and schools are not accepting that as acceptable anymore. They're looking for ways that we can cut that timeline down to stop the killing, to stop the number of victims. And then more importantly, get the medical help in there because the untold story is at Sandy Hook, it was over 45 minutes until the first medical help entered that school building. And if you read the police reports, that was simply one of the officers who was in the building who had been medically trained, looked around and he said, we have way too many guns in this building and not enough help. He put his gun down, started providing aid and calling in more aid to the dead and the injured there. But of course, 45 minutes late with these type of horrific injuries is just not acceptable at all. Yeah, exactly. And as you were talking about it, you know, we've talked on the podcast before about normalcy bias to where we've got to, you know, not be, walk on paranoid, but we've got to get out of that mode of all access to plates. That's just, you know, you know, construction going on because we can see how that, that can really affect our response time. And one of our other guests, I remember him, call, you know, we talked about response to the, uh, white plains church shooting down there and you got cop time and then you got the killing time and the killing time is always going to be longer than the cop time because the cop timer doesn't start until it comes across the radio. And of course they're going to respond as quickly as they can. I mean, there's no police officer is going to say, Hey, I'm going to sit here and finish, finish my meal before I, before I go that, you know, they're going to run out the door. They're going to hit the gas, whatever they have to do to get there as quickly as possible. But during that time, you got to realize that you've got a killer amongst people and they've they've got a chance until there's a good per a good guy good person with with a gun or with so, some ability to stop them nothing's going to stop until that happens until that happens yeah the police really want to make a difference and they want to do the best job they can but they can't help if they're not there and so the fact is no matter what there's always going to be a certain period of time where you are 100% on your own, relying on the staff and the tools and the supplies that you have inside your school building, your church, or your business. And so you have to leverage that the best way that you can. So you are buying time until those professionals can get there. And that's all the Faster Saves Lives program does. It does not replace police or school resource officers or anything else. It simply shortens that timeline down so the killer has less time to commit the violence. And then it lengthens the time that we can keep people alive while we're waiting for the professionals to get there, to get them out to the definitive care that they need. And that's uh, that's what we're doing, buying them a few more minutes of time to get the professionals there so that we have victims and we have patients instead of victims to transfer to them. Does Safer, uh, uh, Faster Saves Lives, does it make teachers or the school employees, uh, paramedics and law enforcement officers going through uh, this training? Absolutely not. You know, we we need them to do a specific job. And we hear this quite a bit, uh, you know, especially from the detractors out there. Well, well, how can you take somebody that is not a firearms enthusiast and get them prepared to do this job in just our, our level one classes, a three, three and a half day class, because we do some lunch work or evening work. And, you know, because 
That's a good question because now 50% of the staff that volunteer for their school's program, and it is all voluntary. This has to be something that the person volunteers for. Uh, 50% of them had never owned or used a firearm until they volunteered for their school's program. And it says a lot about the staff that are stepping that far out of their wheelhouse, doing everything they can to, to keep the kids safe. Uh, but, you know, educators get this. What we do is, first of all, we have willing students, and that's a key to teaching somebody anything to anyone, is they've got to have that desire to learn. Uh, the second thing is, is that we hire the absolute best instructors that we can find anywhere in this nation. And then the third thing is, is they've developed a curriculum for this one specific problem. And if you have willing students, the best instructors, and a very specific curriculum, you can do a lot of things in three days' time. And that's where we get them jump-started. We tell schools this is absolutely the minimal acceptable standard that we think they should meet before putting armed staff into their schools, but we encourage them to take it even further and further beyond that. Uh, even though our level one class we always have the staff qualify to a level which exceeds the law enforcement handgun standard in whatever state they are. Uh, that's never enough. We have schools out there that are even utilizing the FBI uh, qualification standards and even other standards that uh, force their staff to demonstrate proficiencies well beyond what you're going to find in the majority of your responding officers in your local communities also. Do you focus mainly on younger staff that has like military background or, you know, some background along that, or do you open it up to all the, all the staff, you know, for how, you know, whoever wants to volunteer? You know, it's, it's really open to everybody. When we first started the program, of course, schools immediately looked for their retired military or former law enforcement or the ones that they knew were avid shooters or hunters because they had to test the water that way. But that's not the way that you run this program. Um, I go through this a lot with school boards across the country is, you know, anytime that you mention guns in schools, the one staff member immediately jumps to mind that you would never want to be a part of this program. And that's human nature. We always look for the worst situation. But I tell them all, I said, just stop and think for a second. Who is one of your staff members that a Monday morning, somebody comes into your school with a rifle and starts murdering your staff and students who is that employee that's going to go stand between that murderer with a rifle and these kids? Who's that employee who's going to give up the last seconds of their lives to buy these kids a few more seconds of life? And everybody immediately comes up with it because they're in every school building in these United States right now. We see it time and time again. School staff will give up their lives to protect these kids. Those are the staff that you have to identify. Then you simply work with them. What are you comfortable with? Do you want just the trauma medical training so that you can help on this side? Do you want the, uh, the scenario response training? Do you want to learn how to carry and use a firearm so that you can stop this killing in a, the, the fastest and safest, most effective way? And that's where it all boils down to. It's not a program for everyone, but they work with their staff and they find the ones that, first of all, have that mindset that no matter what their policy says, they're going to go toward the sound of that gunfire and stop that person from taking any more lives. Then we simply work with them to equip them and to train them with whatever they're comfortable with to make the situation better. Now, 
you've been talking about schools quite a bit. Is it limited to just schools? Uh, it's not our focus. Um, we're a 501c3 organization, so we try to focus our our grants to the K through 12 environment. We do open this up to churches, businesses, the general public, anyone who wants to attend and take this training back. We do ask if you're outside of the K through 12 environment to cover the costs of the training. That way we can focus our limited resources on providing these grants through the K through 12 environment. And that seemed to work out very well so far. Um, you know, we know a lot of small churches and businesses out there can be very cash strapped also. Uh, so we work with them on providing funding if, if we can, but our focus is on the K through 12, uh, but the program is available to anybody who wants it. And we hope that more churches and businesses step up because as Lieutenant Colonel Grossman says, you know, once we have hardened the schools and we're deflecting them out of the schools, they're going to be looking for your churches and your businesses that have not stepped up the security. Yes, most definitely. And we've uh, probably seen that in the last couple of years with places like White Plains. And, you know, I've talked about before how people have come into it and, um, you know, because there are probably other harder tar targets that they didn't want to end up. I mean, why do people not go and shoot up police stations? Because they pretty much, it's a, it's a guarantee that they're not going to be walking away from that. They are not looking for a fight. They are looking for defenseless victims and we have to take that option away from them. Definitely. Definitely. Um, to what extent do, uh, do they learn, uh, medical? I mean, are, are they going to, um, you know, I guess what, what level are they going to be at once they get done with three days worth of training? Well, you know, what we need them to do is again, to, to treat the type of injuries that they're likely to see in these violent situations, whether it's from a shooting, a stabbing or an explosion, find the injuries that take the lives that are easily treated. And now after two decades of war fighting, uh, we have found that if you go back 20 years when I was in Boy Scouts, the tourniquet was always taught as the absolute last line of defense. Uh, and there, now there was a limb if you use those. Yep. <laughs> exactly. I taught that and grew up thinking that. You and I were probably both taught that Pluto was a planet or it's not a planet or <laughs> I've lost track of which one it is now. But the fact of the matter is, if you have any significant blood loss or bleeding from an extremity, uh, arms, legs, hands, feet, the first thing that you want to do is get a tourniquet on there as high and tight as possible to immediately stop the bleeding because that is the most easily treatable injury and it is also the one that can take the lives the fastest. So tourniquet application is a large part of it, both with professional tourniquets and with improvised tourniquets. Uh, the second and the other parts that we cover is uh, uh, wound packing, compression, bandages. The wound is in a junctional area, the neck, the armpits, the groin. Tourniquet application is not applicable there. But again, very simple skills that they can pack the wounds to, to stop the bleeding off. Uh, the last thing they look at then is penetrating trauma to the chest, sides, or back. Fix that with a chest seal and teach them very easily how to manage airways and you know, that's taking somebody that could be bleeding out from a femoral artery bleed in two minutes, two and a half minutes, and you have now bought them 10 or 15 minutes until the professionals can get there and take them away. And, you know, that's something that's very important. We've had uh, two of our teachers uh, actually use the, the tourniquets. Uh, fortunately, neither one were in the school building. One of them was an accident on his family farm involving uh, his mother. Uh, the second one, 
couple of the school staff were out on a motorcycle trip together. One of them was in an accident. The other staff member had his trauma kit there, which we provide all of the attendees, uh, what we call our classroom urgent response kit, uh, tourniquets, chest seals, compression bandages, uh, gauze, personal protection equipment, everything that they need to treat two to three other injured people. The other teacher had it there, was able to turn a kit off and stop the bleeding until they could get a uh, uh, life flight in there and helicopter the other guy out. So, you know, it's very, uh, very good skills that are not only for violent situations, but severe weather emergencies, sports labs, kitchen accidents. Uh, and we provide that portion of our level one training to schools outside also. So we'll go into their district groups of 30 will provide the medical training to even the ones that are not part of their armed program because Having people that can stop the killing is one part of it, but they're going to have to be stepping over all of those injured people while they're looking for the person that's committing the violence and having other school staff that can come in behind them and start immediately with the trauma care is very, very critical to having a successful outcome uh, to these situations. You guys offer kits. I mean, because it sounds really, you know, a teacher have a kit for, you know, three people besides them, besides themselves. But at the same time, do you have uh, kits at a church or a, a school could uh, purchase to, that would be for more of a mass casualty event? Uh, we do. We've got, we've sourced together basically uh, several different sizes of kits going all the way from the personal kit that school staff said, Hey, what do I do when I'm out on the playground or when I'm out on a field trip? all the way up to a full-size facility kit, which is a backpack-style kit that allows 8 to 10 trained people to treat 15 or 20 injured people. Uh, it's a neat kit because in addition to the backpack itself, it opens up and down the center. There's seven individual throw kits, each with a tourniquet and uh, uh, a compression, compressed gauze and other things. So when the kid arrives on scene, if they have the staff that's trained, and that's the key is they've got to have the training also ahead of time, they can quickly pass out these throw kits and have eight or 10 people working on the injured all at one time. And so we've got those available on our website at fastersavelives.org. They can look down under training classes and the trauma kit order form is there also. But I tell everybody, uh, if you're asking what you should have in your trauma kit, the first thing is, is training, because if you're properly trained, you'll know exactly what to put in your trauma kit. And more importantly, you've got to buy this stuff from reputable sources because there are a lot of Chinese junk out there. Professional tourniquet is going to run you $30 at a minimum. If you're buying them for less than $25, you are buying them from less than what the wholesale price is directly from the manufacturer of them. There are only two manufacturers that we that are certified by the uh, uh, tactical committee on tactical combat casualty care. There are a couple they just added in the last year, but North American Rescue with their CAT tourniquets and then Tactical Med Solutions with their soft T wide tourniquets are the two that have been approved for well over a decade. Uh, there's some few new ones that are now approved, but I'm just not familiar with them at this point. But buy from a reputable source. We supply them. Anybody that buys a kit through the Faster Saves Lives program, those are lifetime kits. If you ever have to use any of the supplies in there, uh, let us know. We'll replace anything that you have to use in there. And truthfully, that's just good PR for us because we always ask you for a good story on, you know, what did you have to use your trauma kit for? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we will replace your supplies for you. 
Yep. That's, uh, that's great. And the one, one thing I'll point out, you talked about the, uh, the, um, uh, soft tea and the, uh, cat, uh, tourniquet. If our listeners don't understand the difference between those two, check it out because there's a, there's a big difference between, uh, between those two tourniquets of who you use and when you use them type of things. So very good. Uh, yep. There's pros and cons to both of them and everybody finds what they're most comfortable with. Definitely. Well, Hey, John, I know, uh, throwing a lot of information out there at the instructors and i'm sure some of them are just chomping at the bit for this next question but how can instructors get involved with the faster program or help spread the spread the word about faster bring you into their school districts or something else like that if they you know like what they're hearing and, the, and they know this is exactly what we need in my community certainly uh, you know we work right now with two large training facilities here in the state of ohio uh, we use the tactical defense institute uh, down in Adams County, ran by Mr. John Benner. And we've been working with uh, Apex Shooting and Training along with the Chris Serino Training Group uh, up in the northern part of the state to do the main three-day classes that we do. Where we really have the holes for the schools is, first of all, they all have to have their concealed handgun license before they come to the, to the first class. So, you know, that meets federal law. The second thing that we found is there is a lot of variation in concealed carry classes out there. And some of them, they have never drawn from a holster. They've never shot single-handed. They've never shot offhand. They've never shot while moving. And so in Ohio, we're able to offer, we've got uh, about four instructor groups around the state now that offer what we call our one-day foundation classes, which is a requirement for the school staff before they go to our level one if they've had no other advanced type of training because we've had people come out of the concealed carry classes that you know we're still teaching the old 1970s teacup grip and you know if we have to spend the first three or four hours of our very limited three-day class showing them what a modern thumbs forward grip is you know showing them how to safely draw out of a holster and reload you know we're wasting a lot of time that the schools need, they need to have those skills ahead of time. And the other bigger issue that we've got is after they've done our three-day program, they go back to their districts. We need instructors out there that can work with the schools and provide ongoing training to them as they need it on a monthly basis, just to keep their skills proficient. And it can sometimes be difficult because a lot of the schools out there are uh, very privacy focused. Um, we encourage them all put a large sign on the door, announce publicly your involvement in this program, but then keep all the other details, who it is, how many, where they're at, all part of their safety and security plan, which is not, uh, which is excluded from public records request. Um, schools, you know, sometimes take that a little further because unfortunately we've had some bad situations here in Ohio. We had a school in uh, uh, East Central Ohio that, you know, they were simply, their staff was going to their local gun store to buy their ammunition to go out and do their monthly or quarterly, I can't remember, qualifications. And of course, one of the clerks in there decided to start spreading around town. Well, you know, I saw Mr. Smith come in here and buy ammo this month, along with, uh, you know, uh, Miss Jones. And so, you know, it really presented those teachers some problems because unwittingly that that clerk or that instructor was outing who was part of their program and school staff really, you know, not only for their safety and security, because if these criminals know who's armed, that's going to be the first targets that they have in there, but even just to keep the community dynamics, because 
like it or not, there are always going to be people in the community who don't agree with schools making this decision. And the staff involved in this program still have to go to the community functions, to the birthday parties, to the graduations, to, you know, the sports events. And so, you know, to keep that community dynamic as intact as possible, a lot of schools are very strict on their security. But especially if your instructors are OPADA or police certified, we use the police qualification for whatever state they're in, whether that's Ohio, Indiana, Arizona, Colorado, any of the 18 states that we've worked with. Uh, we use their state handgun qualification, and then we generally hold them to a higher level. Great example is Ohio. The pass-fail in Ohio is police officers can miss five out of 25 rounds on their annual qualification. It's not good enough for our schools. Uh, we added in three additional shooting while moving, uh, which is a skill may come in handy in a violent situation like this for a total of 28 uh, shots. And we only allow the school staff to miss two instead of the five that are permitted for law enforcement. So a lot of schools look for that for local law enforcement or trainers who can provide that type of, of qualification to them also. Very neat. Very neat. Uh, for Hey, Joe, I've been asking all our guests this year, uh, recommend a book or instructor that you would uh, recommend that other instructors listening uh, seek out during their uh, instructing career. Do you have one of those on mine? Um, well, for the instructors, that's very easy. My, my thing is every year I take one more class advanced than what I had previously had. I always go back and take a beginner handgun one class or something along those lines. And then I always try to, if the funds are there, to go find another instructor that I've never worked with in the past, because we all get very clicky on who it was that we've trained with, and we've got to keep looking out new knowledge and new ways. Uh, as far as the book, uh, if your listeners have not read it, hands down, The Unthinkable by Amanda Ripley is the book that everybody out there needs to, to read immediately. Um, it is not specifically gun focused or anything else, but uh, you had mentioned it uh, early about the uh, the normalcy bias that we all have. And that book goes into that in detail on how people who don't prepare suffer the worst in these tragedies. And uh, you know, got time for a, a quick uh, a war story. I saw this exactly firsthand. I had a situation I think it was three years ago now, uh, I had just finished three solid weeks of working with school staff on this exact subject. We had been out teaching schools for three solid weeks in the handguns and the tactics and the mindset. And I came back and I got a call from a neighbor. My son has a condo uh, that he leases out uh, here still in the area while he's in California. Somebody that was empty, somebody tried to break into the condo. The police are here. You know, I needed to come over. So I went over and, yep, they busted out one of the windows. They tried to kick in the front door, but hadn't actually managed to gain access inside the uh, the condo. So, you know, made sure everything was secure for the night. The police did his fill out the report and was off to do whatever he needs to do. And I came back the next day to uh, fix the broken windows that were in there. So I go in with my shop back, carry it in back to the back bedroom and where the window was broken out and I set it down. I go to fix it and I look up and say, huh, well, who put all this cardboard up over the window? And so, you know, I start rationalizing it. Well, 
maybe my wife did it last night while I was here and I didn't notice, or maybe my other son took a day off work and come over and put cardboard up on the window, you know, to help his brother out. And so I'm sitting here rationalizing, coming up with all of these reasons that there would be cardboard on this window until I got to the fact that, oh my God, they've came back and broke back in again the next day and are still in this condo. And that's exactly what had happened. I managed to shut the door in the bedroom I was and holler out that there's anybody in here, you need to let me know right now. And there was a call come up from the basement. We're down here in the basement. Uh, we're coming up. And, you know, it was, uh, you know, fortunately a situation where they wanted to get out of there as absolutely soon as, uh, as they possibly could. And I wanted them out of there as absolutely soon as they could. But it was really shocking to me that while I thought this was at the front of my knowledge, I was going down this checklist trying to find a logical reason for why I was seeing what I was seeing. And the scarier part is a day or so after that, I remember walking past his outside air conditioner unit, looking over and saying, must be really hot outside because his air conditioner unit is running. Not thinking that what they had done is when they broke back in, of course, kicked on his air conditioner because it was the middle of summer. But, you know, clue after clue after clue that I should have picked up on and simply didn't. And, you know, I always tell these stories on myself because, again, like I said, I was in the perfect situation. I had just left three solid weeks of training and should have been as prepared for this situation as anybody would possibly be. And I still the mental brain went back to this cannot be a dangerous situation. This has to be something normal. Give me a normal explanation for why this nonsense I'm seeing. And, you know, I finally got to the point where I shut it down and it, it ended well. But that book, The Unthinkable by Amanda Ripley is the first read that I recommend to anyone. Yep. That would be a really, really good one um, for people to read because it does, uh, it does put you into that mindset of, you know, don't try to normalize things, uh, too much or else you, uh, can really get yourself into a bad situation. You know, the light bulb in the uh, parking garage that was been, been on for the last couple of nights and all of a sudden it's broken and, and your car's dark and somebody might've done that for a specific reason. That's it. Well, where can instructors find out more about, uh, Joe Eaton and the faster saves lives program. Our, our main website is at fastersaveslives.org. Of course, they can look us up on any of the social media, uh, Faster Saves Lives on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I think it's just Faster Saves. There was a limit to the number of characters. Uh, one thing the instructors can help us out with if they've got students, we also are doing monthly challenges, which sometimes are shooting related. Uh, we're doing a dry fire practice now. We'll be doing uh, some tourniquet challenges uh, every month. People can join up and try and shoot these qualifications for $20. We'll ship you a nice embroidered patch to commemorate your attempt at that. Helps us fund the program and gets people out there doing things that they may not do otherwise. Uh, you know, we've used the Ohio police officer qualification, the FBI qualification, uh, Colorado. Uh, we got the dot torture drill coming up. So, you know, it's a way that they can help us out and work with their students and get their students some good uh uh, good practice also. That's great. Well, thanks again for your time, Joe. And, uh, hope that we get a lot of instructors, uh, getting a hold of you and be, becoming part of the program. We're happy to talk to them. They can get a, use the contact form on there and, uh, let us know what we can do for them. Super. Thanks, Joe. Take care. Bye now.
That's a wrap for this episode. And this week's podcast winner is Devin, and they won a Flight 93 commemorative ball cap. Next week, we're giving away a Palm Pepper Spray. Visit podcast.concealedcarry.com to enter in for our weekly prize giveaway. Remember, you can't win without entering, and your entries do not carry over from week to week. If you have any ideas for new episodes, suggestions on guests to have, or feedback, please email me at ftp at concealedcarry.com. Check out the Guardian Conference on September 17th and 19th in Oklahoma City. Remember to check our website and search for various topics from marketing to instructor development at firetrainerpodcast.com, where you can also leave us a comment on each of the episodes. Share our podcast on social media so other instructors can get the same great information you are receiving with this one. Trainers need to constantly keep up on information. Our podcast is focused on doing just that. Visit our sponsors, especially the Firearm Trainers Association, FTAProtect.com, and check out their instructor insurance. Being a responsible instructor means having insurance coverage. Remember, use promo code FTP10 for 10% off at checkout. We bring you this podcast support in the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy to making gun owners more knowledgeable. Thanks for listening and stay safe. Concealed Carry Inc. and ConcealedCarry.com strives to share helpful information and education about gun-related topics, training tips, and other things that may potentially have legal implications for its listeners. The information contained in this podcast is intended in good faith, but it is important to understand that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand laws that apply to them. Nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued as legal advice or counsel.